Welcome back to the Love Your Story interview land. A couple quick announcements before we get started. I wanted to let you know that there's a new free mini ebook available on the Love Your Story podcast website now. It's called The Five Steps to Reframing the Parts of Your Story that Feel Broken. Just go to the website, give us your email, and you'll get it right into your inbox. So a great freebie available for you. Now, let me tell you who we're talking with today. This man is really something else. From Arizona, Rick Lewis is a speaker, an author, an entertainer, professional misbehavior. Yes, a misbehavior and a confidence coach. He started as a child actor and street performer, and he just used humor and comedy and theater to overcome his fears, which I consider incredibly brave. That's something that would be very hard for me to do. From this starting point, he became a sought after speaker author and trainer, and he's appeared before more than 400 organizations in the last 20 years. He's got a couple of books. His first one, Seven Rules You Were Born to Break, is a celebrated business book that uses stories to inspire growth. And his upcoming book is called Confident Under Stress. And this is again a collection of stories from Rick's own personal journey about responding to life's opportunities and challenges with confidence and courage. Stay with us. Here are some of his stories and his thoughts on how our reactions to current situations are just our old stories pasted onto the present. Stories are our lives and language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Rick, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thank you, Lori. Really glad to be here. One of your keynote presentations that you give to these big companies highlights the difference between reacting and responding. And I really wanted you to focus on that today and give us some insights on this topic because as you put it to me earlier, when we react to something, it's often because we have old stories that we have pasted onto a present event. So can you tell us a little bit about your story, about what you do and about how you have learned this concept? Well, like any other human being, Nobody I know, professional, professional, personal life who doesn't suffer from and also isn't alternately thrilled by the right story or the wrong story from the standpoint of when we are telling ourselves a story that is a story about our limits or about the limits of somebody else. Like if we've got somebody else in a box, for example, we're determined to see someone from a point of view that is limiting or negative or doing that with ourselves. And of course we suffer from those stories. And I think, I mean, I would imagine there isn't a, a single person out there listening that can't relate to that aspect of story that, you know, we all have aspects of story, ways we hold on to a view of things that harm us or hinder our relationships with other people. What's an example of that? Well, for me, myself, being a a father of three children and 
and being on my second marriage, um, I can tell you, here's, here's a really interesting story. This is about my first marriage and a particular conflict that I was in the middle of with my ex-wife. We were in a conversation and it got so heated that I decided I just need to take some space here. So I, I said, I'm going to take some space. I walked out of the back door of the house and I went into the backyard. I walked around and I turned around and I started walking back towards the door. And um, the reason I was reapproaching the, the house to speak with her is because I thought of something I wanted to say that was going to demonstrate that I was right about what we were talking about. So that's what was happening for me. And as I walked up to the back door, she came to the back door. And I kid you not, these, these are the few words that she said to me. Before I opened my mouth, she looked at me and she said, your story precedes you. She could see just from my body language, from my whole manner, that what I was about to do was launch into a, something about how I was right and she was wrong, basically. And there's this phrase, I, I don't even know where it comes from. I heard this some while ago. It's, the phrase is right or related. Do you want to be right or related? And in that moment, I wanted to be right, which is humanly, this is what we do. And I've, you know, I'm at the effect of this all the time. Who isn't? Where we want our way of seeing things to be the way that everybody else adopts. We want everyone to fall in line with that. That's where we're most comfortable because this is how I believe I am. This is how I want to be. This is how I want other people to treat me. So that's an example of my, from my own past of where I get locked into a, a story which doesn't serve my connection with another human being that I say I care about. And this happens all the time for me with my kids, with other adults. So I'm constantly at the effect, personally, of old stories that I carry around. And if I'm not being vigilant about what kind of story I want to hold that's going to facilitate connection, moving past old limits, having other people be at their best, if I don't want those old stories to to dominate, then I have to be intentional. And I loved, you, you have this phrase that you just said before you introduced me, something about if you want, oh, story, it, was, it was stories work best for you when you know how to use them. Yeah, story power serves you best when you know how to use them, when you use them on purpose, right? When you, yeah. story is a powerful tool and that's what we are often talking about, well, we're always talking about, Everybody tells stories. They've been around forever. It's something that we all naturally do. But once you start to understand the power behind them and you use them on purpose with intent, then you have a really powerful tool. It's not something that's laissez-faire that's just happening, but something that you're using that makes you a really effective communicator. And this aspect that you're talking about of just being aware of older stories and of how those stories stop us from getting the things that we want. This personal awareness in the realm of story is also critical. So I, yes. I love where you're going with all of this. 
so you're saying story is a powerful tool from the perspective I'm working from, I'm trying to communicate the fact that story tool implies that this is something you can pick up or put down. And from my perspective, story is ever present with us. Mm. If we're not conscious about um, directing and framing our story in a conscious manner, then story is going to use us at our detriment because the default uh, role of story in the neurological framework of a mammal is to remember the worst and prevent the worst from happening again, which is why they call it a reaction when we react to something. It's an old action that was once appropriate to save us from harm or uh, shame or peril that when the memory of that peril gets re-triggered, then we act in the same way that was appropriate in that original incident when we were three or five or whenever, but it's no longer appropriate. And as an adult, it's downright unseemly <laughs> the way we can often react to another adult who's in conversation with us, who's triggered us. So if we're not aware that these these reactive stories are part of our neurological makeup is that we are destined to overweight and magnify the memory of negative associated events. So anything with negative emotion attached to it, we will remember way more strongly and weight more strongly than we will positive events because that's how survival of the fittest. That's how we have survived is to, sure. we remember bad things and we're able to prevent them. But if we're not aware that that's the kind of story that's operating within us um, by default, then we wind up just acting that out and our lives wind up in a pattern of severe limitation of being feeling, feeling stuck, paralyzed, down on ourselves or down on other people. Yeah, I think story is always there. It's not really a tool for us until we've really practiced understanding that the story is always there. It becomes a tool when you know how to use it and can use it on purpose. But I, I want to comment on a couple of things you said because it made me think of two similar things. One is that in grad school, I was writing a creative piece and I was trying to focus on the good things that had happened in my life that people, frankly, I, it was, I've been married three times and I was trying to focus on the good things that those people had brought into my life, that those men had brought into my life and do a braided essay about it instead of focusing on the negative interactions mm -hmm. that we'd had that had caused the divorces and you know the heartbreak and the betrayal and all of that stuff that ends up defining what those relationships were. So instead I was trying to focus on what are all the beautiful, wonderful things that caused you to be in a relationship with those people in the first place. It was really interesting to me to find that I had to dig for the good, that the bad, the painful things were so prevalent that you actually, that is imprinted on your brain exactly like you said. As I did the research, I found that it was a very evolutionary thing that in order to protect yourself when something hurts you it gets 
imprinted really strongly. And that's the thing that you remember more than you remember the good that was there. And so being aware of just the natural tendency to focus on and, and to remember those negative stories is a super powerful tool because once you realize that that's the tendency, then you can start to change it and try to focus on the good things. The second thing that, or direction that I, I wanted to take where you were talking about was you have a presentation that you do um, professionally. The I'm not sure exactly what you call it, but the, the waiter that goes in and, and I'll let you explain it to them. But this causes people to have reactions or put them in a situation where they get to either react or act. And depending upon what those stories are that they have in their mind, they respond outward. So explain that a little bit of what, what you do, what that looks like. So in order to create a useful conversation in the meetings I present at, so I present at corporate conferences, meetings, trainings all the time, and these always have some form of meeting objective, and, and that's often they want the attendees to be motivated or inspired in, in some way or learn something. And so what I do is I use a uh, a form of theater where I dress up identically to the serving staff. I pretend to be a server, just blending in with the other waiters, but I get more and more odd and eccentric over the course of the meal. And I'm not paying attention to proper protocol in terms of treatment of the guests. I'll, I'll reach right across in front of their face, pouring the water or pour over their head or drop silverware on the floor, be crawling along on my hands and knees under their table. And so I just, I behave in a manner that's very odd and eccentric. And what it does, even though it's a very mild challenge to their expectations in the stream of you know, the kind of things you could react to in your life, it's just, it's just a clumsy, odd waiter. But it's enough of a, a drama that people then get a chance once I reveal that I'm actually the keynote speaker we talk about, well, what just happened with this bad waiter at your table? How did you react? What did it bring up for you? What were you thinking? How did you, you know, did you complain? Did you shoot the waiter dirty looks? Did you go to the manager? Did you try to ignore what was happening? Because these are all some standard reactions. Why do you get those reactions though? What's the old story that, that people would be holding on to that would make them irritated by that, by that waiter? So it would replay for them some instance where they weren't treated, quotes, properly uh, with the kind of respect or regard they want. Somebody isn't paying attention to them, their space, the way they want things. Their, you know, their personal space. So it's all what gets triggered literally is a sense of territory. We, we all have territory and that territory is comprised of both physical space and an ideological space. And the ideological space is there are certain ways that when we are treated contrary to these ways we expect, then we get offended because someone isn't they're not looking at us or they're not hearing us when we like that. That's one thing I'll do. Someone will request something at the table and I'll pretend like I didn't hear them. 
and that triggers them, even though it's very mild, it's very small, but it triggers very old incidents for people where they were ignored or criticized or judged or not paid attention to. And um, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, Rick, so how does a person overcome that? Like when you're giving them advice on how to act rather than to react, how do they cover up that old story with something else? Well, that's a really good question. There's lots of ways to do it. It shows up by paying attention to very small manifestations, ways of behaving, and working against tendency. So, for example, I give a couple of of examples of things people can do when they're in a situation with someone else and they feel triggered. So, An example would be simply to make contact with the person involved. So rather than ignore them or shoot them dirty looks or, uh, you know, snap a directive at them, um, making contact could be one, just making eye contact with the person because when we're in the middle of a reaction, neurologically, making eye contact is something we avoid. And as soon as you make eye contact with another human being, you just look them in the eyes, there's a, a grounding that occurs in that moment. And actually what it does is it calms the limbic system, which is what gets overactive. The, a part of the brain called the amygdala is firing rapidly, squirting toxic emergency chemicals into our brain and that disables the prefrontal cortex. And when you just stop and look someone in the eyes and see, oh, I'm dealing with another human being here, what it does is it, it begins to calm the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex gains some traction again. And you're, you realize, oh, I'm not dealing with my uncle who abused me, you know, or hit me for being uh, loud when I was three. I'm dealing with another present human being here. I have, I have a question, yeah. an example. So I was watching the movie Hancock with um, Will Smith the other day. And if you haven't seen it, there's he and his other superhero counterpart. They have been apart from each other. They find each other and they're having this fight because they're, they're dealing with their powers. And anyway, he, he tells her, stop being crazy and she looks at him and, and you know she gets real quiet and real slow and she turns around and she says call me crazy one more time right you could tell it was her hot button you could tell that something was going to happen and everybody has those hot buttons so you can tell that her hot button has been pushed right he said something that he said for millennia that he'd forgotten about actually in this instance but their interaction is such that he knows a hot button of hers and it's definitely something that irritates her she does not like being called crazy and when you do she flies off the handle and the movie really showed a great example of this well in real life there's also the case of being with someone knowing someone well enough i would say in spousal situations or family situations where you know what people's hot buttons are you know what their old stories are. Well, you may not know exactly what the stories are that cause that hot button, but people have hot buttons and particularly baggage with each other sometimes. 
So what advice do you have or can you give beyond just looking somebody in the eye? Because, you know, with someone that you have a lot of history with, that's not going to change anything. In fact, it may exacerbate the situation because you're looking at them and they're pushing this hot button again. And, you know, the irritation levels are high. So as a person who simply wants to gain control of their own stories and not have these hot buttons be ways that they're manipulated by others to take control, do you have any advice that you can give on how to deal with some of these really tender, painful spots from our old stories? If you could put that, the solution to that in a bottle, you'd be a millionaire. Right. <laughs> in pill form or something. It's a very complex dynamic because you have, first of all, two people. If, if there's to be a successful relationship, both parties have to participate fully and consciously. And so, you know, the desire to push somebody's hot button is a hot button in and of itself. So we already have someone who's in a reactive frame who has, you know, you'd have to be in a reactive frame to intentionally try and get someone else upset and react them and have them react. So these are always, you know, always takes two to tango as the saying goes. There's the immediate sort of like emergency level things we can go to. So if you're an individual and, and you're aware that your button is being pushed, you know, there are the old count to 10, take a breath, walk away and come back. You know, these are the immediate emergency level things we can do to avoid having a, a big conflict on our hands. Or, you know, to ask the person a question in response, can you give me an example of what you're talking about? Or at any point, you know, anyone can de-escalate a conversation like that just by finding it within themselves and asking themselves the question, what am I really wanting? Because the question, what am I really wanting, appeals to a more um, heart-based context. And if we ask ourselves that question, even in the, the heat of the moment, often what we'll come to is that what we really want is connection and resolve or, or cooperation or teamwork. Because, you know, what you're describing can happen between even, you know, colleagues at work, um, any place where there's repeated, there's history and there's baggage of repeated interactions, these hot buttons can surface like you're describing. So um, to ask ourselves, you know, what am I really wanting? And then to even vocalize that to the other person and say, look, I, I don't want to fight with you. We have a problem to solve. We have a project that needs to be completed by tomorrow, and I would really like to be successful in this with you. Or we have a child we're raising together. You know, whether the couple is, you know, they may already be separated or they might be still made, but they're trying to successfully raise a child they both care about. Appealing to one's highest and most heartfelt wish, remembering what that is, and saying it out loud can be a huge help to de-escalate where both people are in a mode where they're hurt, their wounds are active, and they're, they're purposefully hurting each other um, out of, of a, from a defensive place.
You know, I love that advice. Thank you for that, because I think that brings home a really beautiful point that often we're, you know, we're trying for something that's really good, that's beautiful, like you say, connection and resolution. And yet the way we're doing it isn't communicating that. So sometimes just being really clear and saying, you know, taking a moment to clarify, no, what I'm trying to do here is connect. And then saying that out loud is a part of vulnerability. We talk about vulnerability on this podcast pretty regularly because that vulnerability is where connection is made and that that bridges that gap toward defensiveness. So I, I really love that. I also want to add to what you're saying here, which is for us to get control of our stories and become action based instead of reactionary is an individual job. It's not something where we can expect someone else to stop pushing our buttons or control the waiter who is tripping over us or expect outside influences to change so that we can react better. It's something where we get to be aware, okay, I have this hot button because why? And then you find out where that hot button originates from. And then you take the time to look at that story and to debunk that story and get to a place where you can react differently when that that button gets pushed so it's a lot of personal story work and, and we're in control of that that's the lovely thing about it is it's not up to somebody else it's up to us absolutely so, in parting rick what closing words or advice do you have to give to the listeners just to reiterate what you're just saying here to have the kind of life that we dream of you know, we we all have two lives the life we're living now and everything we're getting from that life and the the improved transformed life that we imagine for ourselves where something better is happening for us where we're meeting a higher potential or we're serving people in a way where people we love can live a greater potential so it's kind of we all have this second life which in order to get to that place we have to practice we have to go to the places where those old stories get triggered and in the midst of being triggered, we have to choose the new story, the empowered story, the mm-hmm. story that holds possibility for ourselves and others. And there is just no way around. You just can't do it any other way. You can't hope that accidentally your best life is going to somehow come true that you're dreaming about unless you work at it little by little, reframing and actually first reframing from acting out the old story, mm. reframing, and then practicing little by little, asserting a new response. Uh, just like we talked about, if you're in the midst of an argument, if even one time, you know, if you're used to arguing with your spouse and it always goes the same way and ends in the same fight, even if just one time, you can even delay you can just delay your reaction by three seconds and do that the next five fights, you're ahead of the game. And the next time, maybe you can delay it 10 seconds. And maybe the next time you can not even say the thing at all. But that's how we have to work. We have to realize that this is, these are very difficult patterns to work with. They're very volatile. They're very visceral. And Um, We need to be very compassionate and patient with ourselves and others and just continue 
to work with responding differently the best we can in a repeated basis. And over time, if we're consistent with that, we can have a new life. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for all of those things that you've shared. Fantastic insights. Tell us when your, when your new book comes out. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I should be one of those people who I have a, a timeline and a deadline and commitments and I'm keeping it. But um, with three kids and traveling all the time for work, uh, I work on it as I can. I'm hoping in the next couple of months, I'm not sure when this is airing, but I'm hoping to have the book complete by, um, by midsummer. So if people go to ricklewis.co, not .com, but ricklewis.co. Um, I have a little, a platform called Games for Confidence. And along the lines of what we're describing, in order to be able to build something new for ourselves, we have to have confidence in our ability to take new actions. And I've got just a series of exercises, similar to some of the things I've described today, little things people can do to grow their sense of confidence in being able to act differently and practice new ways of responding little by little. Um, so that's there's a free trial of that on my site and anyone who wants to kind of get more hands-on with you know, evolving their own story can is welcome to sign up there and, and join in the what I call my games, the games for confidence. Awesome. And then your book, once it's published, will be out there too on your site, right? That's correct. Awesome. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it. Thank you, Lori. There are two primary reasons I think this idea of reaction and action are so powerful. The first is that when we act, we are in charge. When we react, our past is in charge. Usually reactions are unfair and cause things in the present to go badly. This makes it a very important thing to understand so that we can act as we choose in the current situation, creating love instead of more of whatever we're dragging behind us, you know? Those things we call hot buttons. The second reason is that in order to reframe our stories, we have to learn how to step away from the stories of the past as something set in stone, because they're not set in stone. For example, Wayne Dyer, a man revered for his spiritual and mindfulness work, said, One of the greatest lessons of my own life was learning to turn the inner rampage of hatred and anger toward my own father for his reprehensible behavior and abandonment of his family into an inner reaction more closely aligned with God and God-realized love." Unquote. Now, Wayne is specifically talking about taking one of his life stories and learning to reframe his reaction from hatred to love. This is an important key to many of our most difficult stories. I'll leave you with these thoughts today. I'd love to hear some of yours as well. So if you'll go to loveyourstorypodcast.com, comment, find contact information for Rick in the show notes, sign up for the free ebook on the five steps to reframing your story, and share this podcast with someone as a random act of kindness today. And we'll see you next week on the next episode of Love Your Story Podcast. Mm -hmm.